2: Two pitch.
0: A swing a long prime. Deep left. Way Goal! Buddy, JJ Cooper, Kyle Glazer, and our Baseball America podcast, jam-packed podcast today. We are going to cover the totality of baseball in many ways. We're going to talk about high school players. We're going to talk about international players. We're going to talk about the minor leagues, prospects, and we're going to talk about the majors. So, kind of whatever part of baseball you like, there's going to be a part of this podcast probably for you. But more importantly, it's also good that Kyle and I, we're we're on the other end of the coast. He's on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast. We're doing a Zoom call for this. So we're actually getting to have a conversation about baseball and see each other as we do this. And Kyle, I I, I appreciate everyone listening, but I'm glad to get to talk to you about this. I'm going to dive in by starting. We're going to start at the high school level because you, last weekend, were at the Perfect Game All-American game. And we're going to talk about some of the standouts in that game, but we're going to have a little trouble talking about the hitting standouts in that game, at least for half of the uh, uh, of the hitters there, because I, I don't know if I ever remember seeing this. I'm sure it's happened before, but the you got to witness the many, many combined pitcher, no hitter in a high school all star showcase game.
2: Yeah, the East team threw a combined no hitter. 11 different pitchers took the mound for the East over nine innings. Funny enough, not a shutout. The West actually got a run. The leadoff walk came around to score. So that made it an unusual no hitter. Anyway, the fact a run scored during a no hitter. Now you add in the fact it was 11 different pitchers. Uh, But it was a cool event. Again, a lot of talent out there. Uh, It's just really, really impressive to see just really the velocity that exists at the high school level now. And again, it's one-inning bursts, guys are thrown as hard as they can to the gun. So you understand it's not, oh, this guy actually throws 97 over five or six innings. But it's still impressive to see just how physical these kids have gotten, how much talent there is on the field, and particularly that East squad. Because that West team had some very, very good hitters, some very, very highly regarded players for the draft next year. And these pitchers just went out and dominated.
0: So who is, if you said... I often like to me, when I think back on these games, I go to, there's these little snippets that stick with you. Who's the guy that when you think back on when we're talking in five years from now, I go, Oh yeah, you were at that, that 2021 perfect game, all American game. Is there a player or a couple of players that are going to stand out as like that was, that's who I remember seeing in that game.
2: Yeah. Dylan Lesko and Elijah green, who coming in were ranked the top two players in the 2022 draft class and even if you go in blind, as I more or less did, because again, uh, Carlos and Ben do a great job on the high school guys, particularly the underclass guys. I'm not really involved with that as much. So I had never really seen these guys and knew the names, but it's very, very clear. As soon as you go out there and watch these guys on the field, it's like, yep, yeah, I, I get it. These are the two best players who stand out. lesco went out dominant first inning, showed fastball, breaking ball, changeup, all were really good pitches. And I think what stood out is just his polish and his command. It's not like this is a guy who's got great stuff, but was all over the place. And we did see a good number of those guys in the PG All-America game. Because again, these are high schoolers, guys throwing as hard as they can. It's going to happen. But he really just stood out for the stuff, the command, the poise. And afterward, I talked to Clint Hurdle, the longtime Rockies and Pirates manager who was managing the East team. And talking about some guys, I mentioned Leska's like, oh yeah, he's good. He's good. You know, it's no surprise to us. I mean, he's the guy that, everyone knows is the stud and, and people have a lot of high expectations for, and for good reason. And then on the, on the, position player side, Elijah green, again, someone a lot of people have touted as the top position player in the class. Uh, Tamar Johnson's another very talented position player, but you look at green on the field, just the physicality, just the physical ability. It's specials. First at bat came up, got a 95 mile an hour fastball, easy swing, no sweat, drove it hard into the left center, uh, raced around for a double, uh, just a really really impressive young player uh, those were the two guys who really jumped out to me and, and again you knew going in they're the top ranked guys but even if you didn't pretty quickly it was like oh yeah these are the best guys on the field
0: An- another guy that i want to talk about that i think it stood out to both of us is nazir moulet who i, I loved a couple of years ago we you know i love the two-way guy and a lot of times these two-way guys you you don't know which way they're going to go I kind of like Moulet more as a pitcher, but at the same time, this is the guy who really can play shortstop and can pitch. Which way did you like him when you saw him in the PGL all-American?
2: Well, he actually started at second base and really where he stood out was on the mound, just really, really impressive stuff. got up to 99 miles an hour, but it was also the athleticism on the mound. You see just the way he moves on the mound, the stuff, the arm, everything. It's like this guy, this is, this is what it looks like in terms of a young pitcher, a uh, so really, really impressive kid. And that was someone that, you know, we talk about Lesko and Green being for me that the top two guys, the guys that really stood out. And there were a lot of players who stood out, uh, but Moulet was the guy that after those two was like, wow, this is someone that you definitely see how it could all come together. Again, on the mound is where he really stood out, but that athleticism that allows him to play the middle infield and again, be someone that a lot of people think highly of there too. It's just a testament to how talented this kid is and he's someone that i'm coming out of this game again not really being a part of our underclass coverage i i didn't know who he was i didn't know the name because again i just i went in blind on a lot of these guys which sometimes is kind of fun you go in with no preconceived notions and just see who impresses you and he was a guy that i came out of there like wow this kid there's really really something there
0: i think the way i described his uh slider also uh from the uh high school american game before the at the All-Star Weekend, Futures Game Weekend, was a slider with hate in its heart because it was nasty <laughs> at, at its best. Like, again, it's pretty polished for 16, I think, if I remember correctly, still. So one of the younger players in the class as well. It's it's an interesting, if you check out at baseballamerica.com, we have just updated our 2022 list. We have a top 50 high school, top 50 college players in 2022s. We've also got our 2023 list up and uh, 20 you know 2024 it's been fun we're now at the very end of the summer showcase circuit the high schools have finished the high school showcases we still have the jupiter coming up and all but the big events for the summer are, are pretty much in our rear view mirror now on the college side the kids are all back at school now uh you know the 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 summer amateur events for the college side they're all done so we're now in a situation where we're starting to turn the page to where the next big things coming up, especially on the college side, we'll have fall ball, but we're not that far away. It sounds crazy to think, but we're not that far away from the next season. And we're not that far away from really diving in deeply into the 2022 draft. But as we look ahead to 2022, you also just finished, you had a QA, and a you had a conversation with Team USA manager, Mike Sosha this week, uh, You know, which you can check out at baseballamerica.com. But with that, we kind of did want to put a bow uh, on what happened at the Olympics. And and Kyle, you know, Japan gets their first gold at the Olympics. Team USA gets the silver, which if you're a BA listener, we hope you kind of understand that's not a bad result for the U.S. The U.S. was a, a 16 field was probably if you were handicapping coming in, Likely to be the team that won the silver. They 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 met their expectations. I don't think they exceeded them, but at the same time, it's not a surprise to see Japan win it. But what, having now had that that conversation with Mike Sosha, what are kind of your takeaways on as we kind of put a bow on the the 2020 Olympics, which happened in 2021, and look ahead to hopefully the return of Olympic baseball in 2028 knowing that we're not going to have
2: Olympic baseball in 2024. Yeah, we're going to have breakdancing in the 2024 Olympics, but not baseball. So there you go.
0: Well, it was golf that knocked about before because the IOC president's wife was big about golf. So that was what killed baseball being in the Olympics back where they lost it for the 2016 Olympics, I believe.
2: Yeah, it's uh, hopefully baseball comes back. But yeah, I think the biggest thing that you talked about and we've talked about and I've written about extensively was the silver medal really is a very good finish for Team USA. Uh, We've written about it and talked about it extensively. Japan was the best team in this field. They were the most talented team in this field simply because they had access to the best players from their top league, NPB. It was former All-Stars, Gold Glove winners, MVPs. It was a really, really talented, deep Japanese team. They were the favorite to win gold, and they did. They went undefeated. They showed an ability to come back. They showed an ability to blow teams out. It was just a really, really good team. If Team USA had beaten them to win the gold medal, it wouldn't have been a miracle-on-ice-level upset. Team USA had a chance, but ultimately the way things played out was about as we expected. Japan wins gold, Team USA wins silver, and Team USA should be very, very proud of that. Uh, so talked a lot about that, that obviously there is always some disappointment when you go to the Olympics and you don't win gold medal. That's true of anyone, whether you're a swimmer or track athlete or anyone. If you go, you wanna win gold, but no one anywhere should ever be ashamed about a silver medal in any Olympic sport. That's a really incredible finish. I- if the U.S. brought its brought the all the
0: MLB players shut down it and they and then they they only won silver, I would say that they should be ashamed of winning a silver medal. They should win the gold. Okay, that's fair. I'm
2: talking general general you know athletes in all general right. at the Olympics. But like, I'm saying Olympics, like you know there are
0: situations. Yes. If yes. if Michael Phelps comes out of an Olympics and he didn't win a gold in any way, he should feel bad because he's the best swimmer in the world.
2: In terms of Team USA, I think overall, you know, and Sosha talked about this, there were just a lot of really good teams in the field. And Japan's pitching really made a difference. We saw some guys who will come pitch in Major League Baseball in the coming years. Kodai Senga, uh, Yoshinobu Yamamoto, just a really good team. So everyone involved should be very, very happy with a silver medal finish. One thing that I realized as I was just doing some research and background for the Q&A Sosha became only the second person along with Davey Johnson to win two. He's won two world series as a player, won a world series as a manager and now has an Olympic medal. Him and Davey Johnson are the only people to do that. Davey Johnson won two world series as a player with the Orioles, led the Mets to the 86 world series and led team Yose to bronze in 08. So uh, first of all, this is a really incredible bow on Mike Sosha's managerial career. He made very clear. He has no intention of returning to manage in the major leagues, a really cool experience all around for everyone involved. In terms of the silver medal, Team USA has nothing to be ashamed of. It was a very, very good outcome, and they played really, really well. In terms of the players, one of the things that really jumped out to me talking to Sosha, and to be honest, this was clear to anyone watching the Olympic Games, but talking to him and having a manager like him come out and say it as bluntly as he did Tristan Cassis, uh, he felt has the most upside of any prospect that was on Team USA, more than any of the pitchers. uh, You know, Shane Boz does rank ahead of Tristan Cassis on our BA Top 100, but watching what Cassis was doing in the Olympics, it was really, really good at bats all the way around. It was big power to all fields. Even talking to some scouts who were watching from afar, going into the Olympics, they liked Cassis, they thought very highly of him, but after that performance, it really solidified for them this guy has a chance to be really, really, really good. One of the elite first basemen in Major League Baseball when his time comes. And that was one of the bigger takeaways talking to, to social just about the players on the team that for him, Tristan Casas was the guy that was very, very clear. I think watching the Olympics uh, to casual observers, to scouts, to everyone. And I don't want to say it was Casas's coming out party. He was a, a top 50 prospect going in, but he definitely raised some eyebrows in ways that said, hey, we knew this guy was really good. He might be really, really, really good, even better than people thought. The thing that stands out to me about him
0: is the, the bar to, bait, to be a top prospect as a first baseman is really high because you have to really hit. I, and again, ideally what you're looking for is that player who has that combination of exceptional hitting ability, and power and you got to see both from costas in the olympics you got to see the power i mean there was easy power there he was one of usa baseball's best power hitters but you also saw against pitchers who he had very little advanced you know warning of scouting reports on to know really what they are like not guys he's seen a ton of times and not guys who you could really feel comfortable, oh, I know that this is what this guy's going to here in this count, but to watch his two-strike approach and how well he kind of slipped into a two-strike approach, you're not going to beat me on two strikes, really did stand out. Like, it, it is, it's a nice further confirmation. As you said, this is not a player who came into the Olympics and you go, who's Tristan Casas? This is a guy who's been a dude, I remember watching him before he reclassified when like he was hitting bombs as an already big dude. As a, then at that time, a rising junior, I believe it was maybe in a rising sophomore on the high school side. Like this guy's always been a dude for a long time, but it was that nice little extra bit of confirmation of watching a guy who's, who's adding those final bits of polish that he needs to add. And when you look at him as a prospect, the Red Sox have had Michael Chavis. They've had Bobby Dahlbeck come up before him, kind of in that corner infielder, probably first base mold, although Dahlbeck's a pretty good third base been just been blocked there. But you say, okay, well, why is Casas going to be different? Casas is a different level of hitter. His field to hit is at a different level than those guys, and it's not even close. Again, I, I still somewhat like Bobby Dahlbeck as a – low average slugger but bobby dalbeck's always been a low average slugger tristan Casas is a guy who you you kind of think if it all clicks for him he could hit 293 hundred with power and that's the whole with a high obp and a high slugging that's a whole different kind of player
2: And the biggest thing with his performance in the Olympics is he was one of the youngest players there. He was facing older pitchers who have made it farther than he has for the most part. And again, just held his own. It was really, really, really impressive. In terms of players on other teams, one of the fun things about international competitions, whether it's the Olympics, the World Baseball Classic, is you see guys on foreign teams that in a couple of years will be in MLB. Uh, Just for example, the 2008 Olympics, that Japan team had Masahiro Tanaka, Yu Darvish, and Koji Uehara. That South Korea team had Hunjin Ryu. He basically pitched them to a gold medal. A few years later, these guys were in MLB and playing big, big roles on championship caliber teams and becoming bona fide stars. This year's Japan team was stacked and had a couple guys. And it was an interesting, I don't want to say first look, because some of these guys were on the WBC team in 2017 that played at Dodger Stadium. So the U.S. fan base got to watch them there. But first and foremost is Kodai Senga. My introduction to him was at the 2017 WBC when he came out pitching 95-97 at Dodger Stadium, blowing Team USA away. And that was a lot of the best hitters in Major League Baseball. This year at the Olympics, he was limited by an ankle injury, so he came out of the bullpen. But it was interesting. Japan only used him against Team USA, and he dominated. 95-99, filthy split. I had written about him going into the Olympics. During the Olympics, There's one of the games that was – Super early in the morning, my time, I got text from scouts. Hey, great call on Senga. This guy looks amazing, great body, et cetera, et cetera. This is a really, really, really talented pitcher who has a chance to come to the U.S. and be not just you know a guy you stick at the back of your rotation, but an impact type of pitcher. He's had some health issues this year, so we have to see what that looks like moving forward. The reason he hasn't been posted is SoftBank, his team, does not post players. They do not need the money. They have never posted a player in their history. So you have to wait for him to become a free agent. It's supposed to be after 2022. Uh, Speaking with some people, I guess Japan's service time rules take injuries into account and it's a little different than U.S. service time rules. So the fact he missed so much time this year might push it back to 2023. I think they still have to figure that out. But either way, this is someone that a lot of people knew about for the last couple years and have talked about for him to come out and show like he did in the Olympics, even in just relief stints, the stuff, the body, everything—that's a guy to look for. And then Yoshinobu Yamamoto, who started their opener—he's a smaller right-hander. He's you know five-nine, not very big, but ninety-three, ninety-five with three secondary pitches that different scouts grade plus, and he's in his early twenties. That's someone I know a lot of teams have interest in. Uh, whenever he's able to be posted, that's someone that we could see in major league baseball and potentially getting a pretty nice contract. So again, you talk about 2008, it was Darvish and Tanaka this time around, it could be Senga and Yamamoto. And, and it is fun. That's one of the things I love about the
0: Olympics. I, again, my memories of Hun Jin Yu, I fell in love with Hun Jin Yu watching him pitch Korea uh, to a, to a gold medal. It, Cause it was just, it, he was unique. He was, it, you. you see these players and you're like, okay, to follow it. Now it's easier now. The, the great thing about now is now, if you want to know about Korean baseball, Japanese baseball, if you want to know about Dutch baseball, it's 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 easier than it was in 2008. But that said, it still is that chance to kind of see players on a field in a game that you're already very closely locked into. It's fun to get to see players and see how they compare and really kind of put those kind of apples to apples of seeing players competing against players that you already know. And that's not only that, but the other thing that does happen from this is you also saw players for the US who gave you those. It it was useful for me to remember how small the margin is. Like we always think about there's this demarcation line between the majors and the minors. There's also majors, minors, and then players who are not even in affiliated baseball. And what really does stand out, when you watch a Tyler Austin, right? Tyler Austin has been a major leaguer, but Tyler Austin is not someone who is, is at, at a prominent point in his career right now, from a US major league perspective, that said, Tyler Austin had a good Olympics at times, and again, it is just useful to me to offer that to be given that reminder that the difference between the 800 or 900 best player of baseball as the worldwide or a thousandth best player, and the 3,000th best player in the world baseball worldwide, it's a really small amount, and. And it's also an ever moving target. Like one player who's fully healthy right now could be the thousandth best player or the 750 best player in the world. And then they have an injury. All of a sudden they're the five thousandth best player in the world. And to watch the Olympics, it was that reminder to me because we're talking about a Tristan Casas who Tristan Casas is one of the best prospects in baseball, but there were a lot of players in the Olympics. There were players on team Israel I'm a, I've been a Blake Galen fan for a very, very long time, but Blake Galen has had an incredible Atlantic League career. He's played the Biners, but again, there are really good players in these Olympics who <laughs> at all levels of kind of what their baseball careers are, and that's always fun to be about the Olympics as well.
2: Yeah, again, it's always good to see players and and different guys, you know, coming up and and showing their stuff. We talk about young guys, Julio Rodriguez had one of the best Olympics of anyone on any team and helped lead the Dominican Republic to the first medal in their history, which it's kind of amazing when you consider how much talent has come out of the Dominican Republic, but in international play, just have not had a lot of success really until this last decade. They won the WBC in 2013 after not doing too well in the first two in 06 and 09 And then in the Olympics, again, they won the final spot in uh, the qualifiers, the final qualifier, and then went out. They had a lead on Japan in the ninth inning and the opener Uh, couldn't quite hold it, but showed they could hang with them and and came out and won a bronze medal for the first medal in their country's history. And actually seeing how happy they were, the celebration that the Dominican Republic had after they beat South Korea for the bronze medal game, that was actually pretty cool. It wasn't quite a World Series dogpile, but you, you could tell how excited these guys were and... Again, seeing Julio Rodriguez have the performance he did on top of just the sheer joy of that entire team. That was also a pretty cool moment from the Olympics.
0: Again, I've always thought like uh, international baseball, sometimes it long interested me. And so I've always kind of thought with that. Cuba for the longest time, we have seen the demise of Cuban inter- Cuba as not just a baseball power internationally, but Cuba for the longest time was the power internationally. If you say who was the power of international baseball in the 20th century? It was Cuba, and everyone else was far behind. Now, at the same time, Cuba was putting much more emphasis on international baseball competitions. Cuba was going to put its best players in every international baseball competition, whereas it wasn't like that the World Cup that MLB was shutting everything down to make sure that they go won, won a baseball World Cup or a 23U or whatever tournament. But it has been really cool to see in the 21st century what you just noted, which is the Dominican Republic has gone from being an utter non-factor in international baseball to being the factor that they really should be, because there are a lot of great players coming out of the Dominican Republic. And that means that not just we talked about you talked about Julio Rodriguez, but that was not the Dominican Republic sending their best team either. We talk about this wasn't USA's best team, that's not the Dominican Republic's best team, but the Dominican Republic has enough good players that sending their fourth and fifth string with some prospects worked into there as well was good enough to win a medal. So that was, again, I agree, that was very fun to watch. So we've covered high school baseball. We've covered international baseball. We still have the minors and majors to come, but we'll be right back after this quick message. And we're back. So now that we are sliding into our minor league portion, our prospect portion of this, if you check out at baseballamerica.com, we've finished updating everything. We've got updated top 30s for every all 30 organizations, organization talent rankings. Best tools are coming. We just finished best tools in the magazine. They're coming up at baseballamerica.com in the very near future. But as we do that, we also have an interesting question, so I'll kind of throw it out to you, Kyle, which is: right now, when you look at who's the number one, Wander Franco's graduated. We have we we have reshuffled our rankings afterwards, but right now, is there a clear number one prospect to you that's at a different level, or is it a very fun debate where maybe between one or two guys, you know, between two players, or even more than that?
2: Yeah, it's actually interesting. It has become a very fun debate. It's something we've talked about a lot as a staff and we've started putting the question to pro scouting directors and we're getting back different answers. Depends who you talk to, personal preferences. I think coming into this, there was a sense that Adley Rutschman was the clear number one as soon as Wander Franco graduated. And he has done nothing to, to lose that. To be clear, he's had an extraordinary season just a great player all around still projects to be the Orioles franchise catcher. Nothing about him has changed any way in the negative. Seeing what Julio Rodriguez has done this year, both in his jump to double-A and everything he did internationally. And also what Bobby Witt has done this year, the three of them, there has started to become amongst evaluators and amongst ourselves, who is the number one prospect in baseball. And Interestingly, again, it, there does not appear to be a clear-cut answer. Uh, we're going to continue digging in on this, especially as we get into prospect handbook season and talking to GMs, scouting directors, farm directors, anyone and everyone, minor league managers. Again, we put thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of reporting into our top 100s. It's not just my personal preference or JJ's personal preference. It's, it's reporting to the extreme. But the reporting we've done so far is, yeah, this is a very, very interesting debate between these three. And you can find different people who will take different players of these three.
0: I, I agree. It is it is close. Now, and this is a, a conversation that will continue. I, I love it when it's close between, not because there, there are years where you say there's no clear number one prospect. And there are other years where you say, there are multiple prospects who are worthy of being number one. I always think back to, you know, a couple of years ago, we had the year that Shohei Otani came over and we had multiple guys who you could make an argument for. I think that was Shohei Otani, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Ronald Acuna, if I remember correctly. I yeah. don't think that was the Tatis year. And the next year you took Otani out of it, but you added Fernando Tatis Jr. to, you know, you had multiple guys that next year too, but, you, you, the, where the answer really was okay. If you want to argue, Ronald Acuna, great. If you want to argue Vladimir Guerrero Jr., great. If you want to argue Shohei Ohtani, great. All of those are very valid choices. But the answer really on all of these is these are premium guys. This is the kind of prospect that you want to see at the top of a list. I kind of feel like that. That's where we're sitting right now, which is whether Adley Rushman, Julio Rodriguez, or Bobby Witt Jr. is number one when we when the dust clears next January and we roll out our updated off-season top 100, whoever's number three on that list, I could see the argument for them to be number one. Um, you know, I, I do probably right now lean personally to Adley Rushman because to find those kind of skills in a catcher, is really, really hard to do, but at the same time, you know, especially when I say find those skills to have the defensive ability to play, to be an impact catcher defensively, but on top of that, to also be that middle of the order bat, that doesn't really, that very rarely exists. And the players, if you look at it, the players who do that are hall of famers. I'm not saying that Adley Rushman's is going to be a hall of famer, but Buster Posey, is on his way to a hall of fame career. Why? Because Buster Posey is that catcher who's been able to catch. He'll have a 10 plus year catching career and be an impact bat. If you can do that, you are one of the best players in the game. And that's where, again, that's not saying that's what Adley Rushman is going to do, but that's absolutely within the realm of possibility for Adley Rushman. Now, if you can do that at shortstop, it's still kind of the same story, but It's a little bit, we see a lot, we see more middle of the impact, middle of the order impact bats at shortstop than we do at catcher. And then that's probably right now where I would say I would rather, I would edge personally wit over Julio Rodriguez is that when you throw in that ability at shortstop, I'm probably taking that over the outfielder who I think has similar offensive upside, but again, man, what a fun debate. Like, you know, is there, is there a wrong answer in the group cup?
2: No. And that's one of the things where, you know, the joke is, all right, would you rather have Adley Rochman, Bobby Witt or Julio Rodriguez? The answer is yes. I mean, just all three of them are, are great. and me whoever you want. They're, they're great, great players. We have Adley number one currently. I would in no way, shape, or form say, oh, that's wrong, or he needs to move off the other guys. He is the number one prospect in baseball. He deserves to be the number one prospect in baseball, and there are no objections to him being the number one prospect in baseball. Uh, It's just a really, really talented group. Like you said, the Otani, Acuna, Guerrero debate has been the most interesting of my time at Baseball America. And you look at where all three of these guys are in their careers right now. Obviously, Acuna got hurt this year. All three of them have been fantastic. Again, Guerrero's had the big breakout year this year. Otani has had an unprecedented season, unlike anything we've seen in Major League Baseball history. Good time to plug. We have a Shohei Otani cover feature coming out next month's issue of Baseball America. I believe it went to press today, so make sure and check it out. It'll be
0: online real soon, and it's great. It's Kyle did a great job on it.
2: Thank you. It was a lot of fun to do. And again, Acuna's been fantastic as well. I, again, you're just talking about three superstars in major league baseball and you would take any of them any day of the week and you know it's a fun debate who's better than who it's not a contentious debate where someone is crazy if they pick the other guy and i think the way this seems to be trending now with the adley julio witt debate as we're talking to more and more people as we're watching these guys ourselves as we're seeing how they're performing and we're seeing their tools grow and progress it's becoming kind of like that of God. All these guys are really, really, really freaking good. And if you chose one of them, uh, cool. I, I I don't think any one of these is the wrong pick.
0: Oh, it's it's so that's kind of where we're looking at, at the top of the list. But the other thing we want to talk about today a little bit also is is as we as the dust clears from all of our midseason reporting, it's not surprising this year that we saw more movement than we do in a normal year because we're coming off of a year where no one played any official minor league games. We had all site, a little bit of instructs, but I mean, we had crumbs. It was basically like trying to, I would describe it this way. If you said to me, pick the best burrito in your town, because I love burritos, and you said, or taco, you know I love tacos too. Let's say best taco. And he said, but I got bad news for you. I'm gonna let you read some other people's reviews of the tacos, but you're not gonna actually get to eat any tacos. And you said, do you feel comfortable about your rankings? No, you wanna eat the tacos. Well, we didn't have a minor league season last year. So we did the best we could to line guys up and we talked to every team. And But even when you were talking to scouts and organizations last year, they would say, I don't have a great feel on this organization, why? well, they didn't share their data or they didn't share their video or they didn't allow scouts to see. So there were times where there were, there were teams that didn't have instructs last year. So we knew that this would have a lot more movement than a normal year. And it has, but I'll ask you Kyle with that, who's someone or who a couple of players who you say, you know what, as we sit here late August, 2021, This player is clearly a better prospect than what we thought coming into 2021.
2: I think the biggest thing is how much these guys changed, because we're talking about guys 18, 19, 20, 21. How much these guys change even in one offseason can be huge physically, skills wise, anything and everything. Now you're talking about a lot of these guys, 18 months. And so many of these guys just change so, so much. And that's been one of the interesting storylines to me is who has changed the most. And as you mentioned, become just a very, very different prospect. And for me, the answer to that is Shane Boz. And we had some discussions internally in our office about this. So I want to take a step back. Shane Boz in 2019, talking to evaluators in the Midwest League when he was at Bowling Green, it was, hey, he's got great stuff but it's really inconsistent. The delivery is kind of violent, doesn't repeat his release point. I talked to a couple evaluators and it was, some said he's a 100% reliever, like there's no questions about it. You know, spray fastball, slider flashes, but it's kind of inconsistent and the changeup is all over the place. The command isn't there. The answer was either it's a 90% reliever or it's 100% reliever. No one I spoke to who did not work in the Rays organization thought this guy was a probable starter. And then I saw him for myself in the Arizona fall league. And again, it's the end of the season, but the guy there was like, Oh, this is a 100% reliever again, violent delivery. Didn't repeat his release point two pitches only. Now I thought he would be a very, very good reliever. I remember thinking, Hey, you know, harnesses some of this. He could be a closer, a Craig Kimbrell level closer. It was kind of where my head was at, which is still a top 100 prospect and a really good player to have. But and again, I said this a few times, to me, he was a 100% reliever, no questions asked. And a lot of evaluators shared that opinion. Seeing what he looks like this year is totally different. It's amazing to me how much calmer, how much more streamlined his delivery is. And as such, the release point's better. The control has jumped. I mean, forget two grades. This is a like a four grade jump to being one of the best control pitchers in the minor leagues. It's truly remarkable how much Shane Boss has gotten better. And you give him all the credit in the world for putting in the work to get to this point. And that to me is the guy, when I look at what this guy looked like in 2019 to what this guy looks like in 2021, it's an entirely different player. And you just give him credit. But I just, I've thought about this a lot with him. Like, gosh, I I still can't believe how much he's changed. Just, I think the Durham Bulls threw some highlights from his most recent start on Twitter. And it's just like, if you told me this was an entirely different pitcher, different human being, I would have believed it.
0: It's always a useful, like, again, if I hear a hundred percent, you know, reliever on a guy, I always think like, no, I mean, because there's always that possibility that a player is going to figure some things out. Um, and, you know, and, and again, credit to Boz. The guy I was going to to jump to is uh, one of the guys is uh Yankee shortstop, Anthony Volpe, who really was a 2019 for, you know, pick and didn't kind of get a chance to show much of anything before we had the putt to shut down in 2020 and has come out this year and has been one of the best players in the minors, one of the most productive players in the minors, um, a player who kind of, uh, you give credit to what the Yankees did at the trade deadline. And part of the reason they could do what they did at the trade deadline is you don't mind trading away an Ezekiel Duran or a Josh Smith when you have a player who's better than them, also in your same organization, who plays also an up-the-middle middle infielder who could play shortstop or second base. He does stand out that way as a guy who has, just like you said, the difference that you see. That's what's fun about this. There is no certainty to any of this. And it's fascinating year in, year out, because you'll see players get better. You'll see players who get worse. They kind of prefer for their sake when they get better. But you'll also see players transform. And you look at he's a more physical player. He's a better hitter. Just an all-around better player. But if I was going to say, though, an organization, Kyle, who's had guys make steps forward. And we look at our organization talent rankings. It reflects this, but if we were turned bound the turn back the clock to two years ago, and you and I were talking and we said, you know what, let's talk about that Royals, especially that Royals high a team at Wilmington. We'd be talking about, man, Nick Prado, first round pick, MJ Melendez high pick. These guys look lost at the plate. And you looked at it statistically. It's never good when you are piling up strikeouts at the rate they were. And they were piling up strikeouts. I think in Melendez's case, again, you never want to have a strikeout number that is higher than your batting average. Think about how hard that is to do. You pretty much guarantee in a minor league season, you can't strike out 200 times. So it it means that your batting average is going to be below the Mendoza line. And by the way, remember, it's a 140 game season back then, which 140 games, if you're going to strike out over 150 times, that's brutal, especially for a catcher. And to see what these guys have done, the Royals revamped their hitting development system and they're seeing benefits from it. Now there is a, there is a, boost that you get, hitting is hard, and when you hit at Wilmington, think about this for the Nationals hitters too this year. Hitting at Wilmington gives you negative reinforcement because you can really get into a ball that would be a home run at a lot of places, and it ends up just being a fly out. So you go, oh, I thought I got that ball, and you realize, no, I'm not going to really hit that ball out. But that said, it's not just going to double-A, uh, you know, Northwest Arkansas and AAA Omaha that has turned it around for these guys. You look at what Prado's done. You look at what Melendez has done. These guys have essentially remade themselves as prospects.
2: Yeah, Prado especially was interesting to me because I remember in 2019 talking with some evaluators. I did not see him myself that year, uh, but saw some video and saw the numbers, obviously. But I remember talking to some evaluators who saw him who said, you know, I know the numbers are not good and the performance is not good but I still think there's something in there. They saw good baseball instincts that there's some things in the swing, to like, He just need a little bit of work. It was really interesting. I, we need to tip our cap to Bill Mitchell, who does the Royals for us. The Royals were one of the teams that uh, did not share video and data from the alt site last year. They were one of the secretive orgs where no one really knew what was going on. And Bill dug in and used his sourcing and wrote about it that, Hey, Prado did a lot of work at the alternate site that, People think he's really, really, really changed and we think something good is really going to pop this year. And then we saw him in spring training. And I remember again, my annual spring training piece calling around. It was fascinating to me how obviously the public, everyone was going crazy about Bobby Witt Jr. for good reason. But when I was calling around asking scouts, Hey, who's impressed you the most? The first name out of their mouth was Nick Prado, not Bobby Witt. The swing adjustments he's made. It's just, Again, you tip your cap to him. Uh, The Royals hitting development program led by Drew Saylor. They really, really, really revamped this guy. And now, I mean, he projects to be a guy who hits for average and power as a good everyday first baseman. People believe it. They believe in the swing. He's getting the velocity. He's hitting upper level pitching. He's seeing pitches. Anything and everything you wanted to see has happened. Uh, The amount of adjustments he's made, you just... Again, give him credit. Uh, the work ethic is, is clearly through the roof there for him to go from what he was then to what he is now. Uh, but what was interesting to me is, again, even when Prada was struggling, evaluators saw some things. We say, you know, I'm not going to give up on this. I think there's something in there. Melendez was a different story. It was, hey, this guy just doesn't handle velocity. He's got a long swing. Um, it was very, very questionable. People liked the defense. They didn't love it. But whereas people thought there was still hope with Prado, Melendez was a lot more, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be tough. I mean, no one said no, but it was a lot more hemming and hawing. And again, he's come in here and really, really, really done a tremendous job. Again, you give him credit. You give the Royals Hang Development credit. That, to me, is the one. I mean, it's impressive what Prado has done and how much he's changed But again just the fact there was still some sign of hey there might be something here i wouldn't say it's the biggest shock in the world because people saw something for mj melendez to be hitting 280 with 30 plus homers across double a and triple a as a 22 year old while staying behind the plate and by all accounts doing a pretty good job back there that's something no one saw coming and again just super super impressive on so many levels it
0: it is and again you we root for prospects. It's cool to see prospects make steps forward In an ideal world. We, we, we kind of do want prospects to succeed. Obviously not all of them can. And, uh, but it is cool to see when a player does kind of take that, that step covered high schools, international minors. We're going to wrap this up this podcast by talking about the majors. Cause here we are, as we're recording this, we're not a month out from the trade deadline, but we are far enough out. We're over three weeks out to where we can say, okay, some teams really did. You are graded on the trade deadline by how it turns out afterwards in some ways. That's a a reasonable way to say it. Now, you can have a good process and it goes poorly. You can have a poor process and it goes well. All those things are true. But when you do look at it right now, there are teams that you would say, whoa, they really seem like that what they did at the deadline made a difference for them. And we touched on, we said about the Yankees trading Duran Smith and many others, but obviously they're a team that if you look at where they are right now compared to where they were on July 25th, a month ago from the day that we're recording this now, this is a better team. And this is a team that obviously has a much better shot of doing some damage in the playoffs.
2: Yeah, first and foremost, you will never get the full picture of a trade made at the deadline until five, six, seven years down the road after the prospects either make it or they don't, and they develop into the players they're supposed to be or not. But what we can say is, hey, there are certain teams that right now definitely gave themselves a boost. And you look at the Yankees, since their doubleheader on July 4th, They're 32-11, the best record in the majors. And I want to start with them because this really started to turn around before the trade deadline. And Matt and I talked about this on a podcast we did back in June as we kind of previewed the summer. The Yankees were just not playing good baseball. They were running into so many outs on the bases. Their defense was atrocious. And now you look at them, you have to give them a lot of credit for internal improvements even before the trade deadline hit. I went back and looked at this. The Yankees ran into 31 outs on the bases through the first 10 and a half weeks of the season. That was far and away the most in the majors at that time. The next closest team had 23. So 31 outs on the bases the first 10 and a half weeks of the season. They've run into 15 outs on the bases in the last 10 and a half weeks. They've cut their outs on the bases by more than half over the same time frame. That alone, you're just playing better baseball, running into fewer outs That's a really, really good start. The defense has gotten better. They were 24th, 25th, depending on what metric you wanted to use to measure them defensively earlier in the year. Now they're more 21, 22. Again, it's not great, but it's better. They're just playing better baseball. And a lot of people were calling for Aaron Boone and his coaching staff's head early in the year. And to me, that is coaching. Hey, we've got to be better on the bases. We've got to be more reliable defensively. The work they're putting in on the field or behind the scenes or before games, a lot of that is coaching. And a lot of it's the players and the personnel you have too. But I think you give the coaching staff credit for really drilling it into the players and helping put a stop to this. It's a huge, huge difference in just how clean a baseball they're playing.
0: The other team the team to me stands out is is that if you do look at the the Atlanta Braves essentially have had to start over when it comes to their outfield. Marcelo Zuna not only injured, but his career is very much uh, in in jeopardy because of his actions because he was uh, arrested. So there's there's a there's an off the field component that goes with this in addition to him being injured. Ronald Acuna is out for the season. One of the best players in baseball out for the year, Christian Pache was not, uh, able to, to kind of take that next step to earn a, a, that, to hold that starting job and, and Ender Enciarte has been DFA'd. So essentially if you take what was supposed to be the Braves outfield of opening day and you look at it compared to now, it's entirely different, but give Alex Anthopoulos in that front office credit because the way they did it is essentially they took on a number of players who are all kind of, you could describe them as role players. They're all players. These are not perennial all-stars or anything of the sort. But Jorge Soler, Adam Duvall, Jock Peterson, they haven't really gotten even help from Eddie Rosario yet, but it's coming. He's uh, been on the IL. Those are four players who are, useful big league outfielders, especially if you can kind of mix and match them to play to their strengths and try to minimize some of their weaknesses and what's happened. And especially what's happened also is, is so you have them to fix the outfield and you have guys coming off the IL and their pitching staff, their starting rotation, which has been gutted at times this year now is in a situation where you, you kind of feel like sometimes they may have more starters than they have starts to put or, to, to hand around. This is the team that's kind of taking
2: control of a division that at times it's looked like that no one wanted to win. Alex Alexanthopoulos and his staff, I don't think get enough credit for how clear are they are about their team. I want to go back to 2019. You'll remember the Braves bullpen was an absolute disaster, a complete mess. What did Anthopoulos and his staff do? They went out, they acquired Mark Melanson, they acquired Shane Green, they acquired Chris Martin. They didn't sit there and lie to themselves and say, oh, you know, we believe in our guys, they'll get better. No, their guys weren't good enough. They needed to get better to have a legitimate chance at reaching the postseason. They made the moves to do it. We saw that again this year, as you mentioned, acquiring Jock Peterson, acquiring Jorge Soler, acquiring Adam Duvall, acquiring Eddie Rosario. They needed a whole new outfield and they went out and got a whole new outfield. The other thing they needed was a right-handed reliever at the end of games. This team was very, very left-handed. What do they do? They go out, they get Richard Rodriguez, who so far has been excellent for them. I really think the Braves front office is among the best in baseball at being honest with themselves about what they have on the field and then being aggressive about going and finding upgrades. Uh, To me, I thought their trade deadline was really one of the most impressive as you mentioned, they're getting healthier now. They're in really good shape. I want to circle back to the Yankees real quick because the other thing with them too, and this goes back to being clear-eyed, being objective and being honest with yourself about, hey, we need to get better. Here's our shortcomings. Let's fix them. They need to get more left-handed. They need to get more athletic. They need to get better defensively. What do they do? They go out, they get Joey Gallo and Anthony Rizzo. And what's been amazing about the Yankees during this run is Gallo and Rizzo really haven't hit yet. They actually have not done a whole lot offensively. A big homer there, a big homer there, but it's still early. They just haven't really clicked into gear but what they bring defensively, you know, just again, making the lineup more dynamic. It's made a big difference. So I think for me, the Braves and Yankees, the fact that these two teams met on nine-game winning streaks going into their series earlier this week, that's not a coincidence. They're getting hot because they got better players. They had clear weaknesses. They addressed them. And that's what the trade deadline's for. And for me, just the boost they've received already, it's completely altered their outlook. And The Yankees were a team that at one point you were wondering if they were going to miss the playoffs. Now they're creeping up to possibly first place in the division. The Braves, again, were really scuffling. Now it looks like the NL East is theirs for the taking. That's what the trade deadline's for. And I think both these front offices deserve a lot of credit for being clear about their weaknesses, making moves to address them. And in both cases, the Braves especially didn't give up a whole lot to get better, which I really think that, you know, we see Braves fans are a very pessimistic bunch. But this front office continues to impress me with how they address their team at midseason. Again, what they did in 2019 and what they did this year makes a huge difference. And the thing
0: I'd say with that is, is, and does it within limitations, because for all the talk, when the Braves got the new stadium, the talk was is the Braves' new stadium would provide the revenue that would allow the Braves to be a a large market, a large revenue team once again, like they were for much of the Ted Turner era when they would go out and compete and and basically had payrolls that were among the the highest in baseball. Well, that hasn't really happened. And and I, I say that like if you compare and contrast the Phillies this week, Dave Dombrowski announced some changes. You look at a team that that also at the trade deadline looked like a team that was in contention for the, you know, for the NL East crown. And it has gone much more poorly for them in the intervening few weeks. Stands out to me about the Phillies is the Phillies have actually done a solid job when it comes to big high priced talent acquisition. You can't, you can't really be that disappointed if you're a Phillies fan, with what you've gotten from Bryce Harper. Bryce Harper's been great this year. You can't be disappointed with JT Realamuto. You can't be disappointed with Zach Wheeler. The guys that they've gone out, even Andrew McCutcheon, who was a lower-cost veteran, you know, who's had some injuries but has had some moments this year where he's played really well. The problem the Phillies have had to me is that they just don't have many homegrown, really, success stories once you get past the Nola and Hoskins era, which stretches pretty far back now. And the thing about all of these is is that it's often complex. You can say, okay, is that a scouting problem? Because they picked very high for multiple years in a row. And if you had it to do over again, Cornelius Randolph, Mickey Moniak, Adam hazley those are three top 10 picks, if I remember correctly. And it hasn't, none of them have ended up being cornerstone type guys. Alec Bohm had a good rookie season last year. He was just demoted this year. Scott Kingery got a long-term contract and then was DFA'd. But the other thing that stands out with them is, okay, maybe that is a scouting problem, but maybe it's a player development problem also because with a lot of these players, look at a Kingery. I mean, you and I both, I mean, we're, I, just an agreement on this, but it was baffling to me with Kingery same for you to bring him up to the majors and say, by the way, we think that you can now be a shortstop, even though you've never played that position at any point in your pro career. And you didn't really play it in college either. And by the way, we're going to play with shortstop over JP Crawford, who by everyone's agreement is an actual shortstop or to say with Alec Bohm. I know that they have some problems with first base, but the fact that Alec Bohm is not a good defensive third baseman is not surprising. That's kind of not a, that's not an unexpected result. He's been a little bit, he's worked at it, but he's still not very good at third base. And in his case, I do wonder if the challenge of playing a position that is at the upper level of your ability to do so does kind of carry over a little bit at the plate. They've, The the problem, as I see the Phillies have had, is is that they have really struggled not to develop stars from homegrown players. They just need these homegrown players to be good complementary pieces, guys who can fill out a bullpen, guys who can be the back of a rotation, guys who can be the fifth, sixth, seventh best guys in your
2: lineup. And they've really struggled to do that. Yeah, Dave Dombrowski talked about it pretty openly uh, in terms of what he what was reported uh, in The Athletic. Andy McCullough wrote the story. He spoke with media before their game against the Rays that from his perspective, the issue is in development. And you go back and you look, the Phillies have really had one fruitful draft over the last decade. 2014, they got Aaron Nola and Reese Hoskins in the same draft. After that, it's been a lot of misses. It's funny, after Aaron Nola took a one hitter into the ninth inning against the Potters on Saturday, I had an... Aaron Nola-themed story ready to go before Jake Cronenworth ruined it with a two-run homer. But as part of that, I went back and looked. When the Phillies were really, really successful during the end of the 2000s, obviously won a World Series, go back and look at their success in both drafting and development before that. They drafted Pat Burrell, Chase Utley, Cole Hamels, Brett Myers, Gavin Floyd with five consecutive first-round picks from 98 to 2002. Not in that order, but those are the five players they got. Their second round picks in the 90s included Scott Rowland, Jimmy Rollins, Randy Wolf, Marlon Anderson. In 2001, they forfeited their second and third round picks for signing Real Cormier and Jose Mesa. Not something you really want to do, but they found Ryan Howard in the fifth round and he became an MVP. I mean, the Phillies, when they were the best team that they could be, that really the most success they've had really in the last 30 plus years during that run there at the end of the 2000s into the start of the 2010s it was a lot of guys that they drafted and developed really, really well. And we've just seen them consistently struggle to do that recently. You mentioned Kingery. I've said it before. I've written it before. We've talked about it. That was a case study and everything not to do. Hey, let's take a young prospect, move him up the defensive spectrum in the major leagues while he's also trying to adjust and learn to hit major league pitching. There's nothing else you can do that would set a guy up for failure more than what the Phillies did there. There was that stretch for a week plus where they had Kingry at short and JP Crawford at 30. and was like, what are you doing? It, it just was stuff like that. We saw Spencer Howard fail to develop. They've got to fix it. How much of it's scouting, how much of it's development. Dombrowski highlighted the development side of it. In reality, there's always probably a little bit of both, but for the Phillies to be successful, they're going to have to fix that. And again, you talk about this in the context of the deadline they had a great deadline. I actually thought the Kyle Gibson trade was the biggest heist for them to get Kyle Gibson and Ian Kennedy and Hans Kraus for Spencer Howard, who has not figured things out and has not figured it out in Texas so far either. And two prospects who are not in the top 30 of one of baseball's worst farm systems. That was a coup. And Gibson's been very good for them so far. 377 uh, ERA has gone at least six innings and in every start so far. But like you said, there's just been too many holes we have to see what they can do because this is a team that should be better than it is. But every year, again, we just see the back of the rotation, the bullpen, there's just too many spots where they just don't have enough guys. And a lot of it is because they haven't developed effectively enough.
0: I mean, they still are in it. As we record this podcast, they're four and a half games back in the East. So I don't want to make it sound like that this is over and this is a disaster that they cannot bounce back from or anything like that. But it is true that, they look worse as we sit here recording this now than they did a month ago as we led into the, uh, the trade deadline. And at the same time, if you look at the two teams, you would say right now, you probably do like where the Braves are and where, not where the Mets are, but where the Braves are and, and the chances of the Braves of pulling away, which let's just be also clear, the Braves who, it's been a competitive division, but they've been the team that has been the best team in this division pretty consistently now been a number of years now where at the end of the day when the dust clears even if the nationals do have the world series title uh when it comes to winning the east the braves have been the team that has been the team to to beat in this division so far but we will wrap it up there because i think we've gone for even over an hour we've kept you all around for a little while here on the baseball america podcast we do appreciate the download as always if you want to leave a review at wherever your favorite podcast catcher is please do that for us we would appreciate it we do also remind you, as we often do, to check out BaseballAmerica.com. There's a ton of great stuff up there. We have a lot of draft stuff. If you enjoyed the draft conversation at the start of our uh, podcast today, check out all the stuff that we posted this week. Also, if you like that, when we talked about the majors and the minors, we have our best tools packages coming out very soon. Kyle's story about Shoei Otani, but also our looks. We talk to managers, get votes from managers in every level of the you know, class a high a low a double a triple a and the majors and there's something that does stand out on the major league side this year is is we'll have a story about it is that it's been kind of a changing of the guard we have seen some kind of the stalwarts who win certain categories year after year have had to hand it off to younger players who in some cases especially one i wouldn't be surprised to see this player this p- hitter win this award for the next decade potentially because that's how good he is uh you you, so you'll be checking that out baseballamerica.com as well but for kyle i'm jj so long everybody